Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. When the artists of the American Revolution tried to capture the drama of the war, both its glory and its horrors, they also unwittingly told the story of the unheralded blacks who served in it. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Edna Gabler, discussing how 18th century artists portrayed enslaved Americans during the American Revolution. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Edna Gabler. And she'll be discussing how 18th century artists portrayed and showed the roles and actions of enslaved Americans during the American Revolution. This is a really important article, uh, in my opinion, uh, that we'll be discussing this week. uh, Because it underscores one of the important elements of American history that a lot of folks are still coming to terms with. And that is that enslaved Americans played not only an important role in American history, but probably a critical role in the development of this country. Everything from winning the American Revolution uh, to fueling the American economy uh, in its earliest years with their actions. Uh, We always talk about America as an agricultural powerhouse in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. But we often leave out the roles of enslaved African Americans in that in that story. They planted the seeds, they tended the crop, they harvested the crop, they carried the crop to the ships that would ultimately send them overseas, yet they got no money in return and until recently almost no credit for their efforts. Think about how we like to discuss a good day's work, how good that makes us feel, uh, that Puritan work ethic in a way. Think about how we talk about our forefathers, how hard they worked to build this country. For a lot of black folks today, they don't have that story. And for a lot of enslaved African Americans who lived in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, that, that reward, that legacy was denied to them. It's time they get what they deserve. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Edna Gabler. Edna Gabler, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure to be here. Tell us about your background. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, but I've spent my adult life in New York, initially in Manhattan, and for the past 30 years in Westchester County, uh, currently Bronxville, which is about 28 minutes outside the city. Uh, My undergraduate study was in sociology and English, and I got a master's in educational psychology from Yeshiva University. When I took up psychology, I gravitated toward a research-oriented degree. I didn't realize it at the time, but it's research that I find most compelling. 
Um, unlike many contributors to the Journal of the American Revolution, I disliked history in both high school and college. I now credit that dislike to the way it was taught. Lots of memorization of names and dates. It frustrates me that my 15-year-old granddaughter makes some of the same complaints about her history courses that I did years ago. It was years later before I discovered how truly exciting history can be. Um, a friend was reading Cherno's Hamilton and recommended it. I picked it up and I was hooked. History came alive. I, I, I've since read more than 50 books on the Revolution and early founding of the nation, and I've traveled both domestically and internationally to visit battlefields, encampments, and sites where revolutionary leaders fought, strategized, wrote constitutions, and signed treaties. My husband and I really enjoyed a trip to Paris a number of years ago when we mapped out a walking tour of where Adams, Franklin, Jefferson, and Jay lived, worked and entertained, including 56 Rue Jacob, where the treaty ending the revolution was signed. When we had dinner at Procope, one of Franklin's and Jefferson's favorite haunts, I almost expected one of them to walk into the room. So, so moving was that experience. When we moved to Westchester, I was totally unaware of the gems of the revolutionary period that are almost on my doorstep. In 2014, Eastchester, of which Bronxville is a part, celebrated its 350th anniversary. When a call was made for volunteers to write a history of Eastchester to celebrate the anniversary, I decided to look into what happened here during the revolution. I learned that East Chester was in one of the most precarious and dangerous parts of the neutral ground between the British forces in Lower Manhattan and American troops in Peekskill for the seven long years of the war. A shorter version of that chapter became the first article I wrote for the journal. I also discovered St. Paul's Church in Mount Vernon, which is about 20 minutes from where I live. The church served as a hospital first uh, for the Americans, and uh, then for the British after we were defeated at the Battle of Pell's Point. The church bell made at the same foundry as the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia was buried during the war. And today it chimed 13 times representing the original 13 colonies during a moving July 4th ceremony every year. These are the things that brought history alive for me. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, actually, I kind of stumbled on it. I was doing research on the Battle of Bunker Hill, and I came across a reference to John Trumbull being an aide-de-camp to General George Washington, and that he observed the battle through a spyglass from Roxbury, about four miles from Boston. I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised, since I knew that people from all kinds of occupations served in the Continental Army. Henry Knox, a bookseller, and John Glover, a Marblehead, Massachusetts ship owner and merchant, merchant being just two of the most notable. But somehow I hadn't imagined artists as soldiers. Digging into this a little further, I learned that Charles Wilson Peel was a captain in the Army and that he actually fought at the Battle of Princeton with Washington. This piqued my interest, and I became curious as to what kind of paintings they might have done related to the war. On examining their work and those of several other artists of the period, I detected a similarity in how African Americans were portrayed in them, and it was this that I decided to pursue. What did enslaved America look like 
at the beginning of the revolutionary period? Well, at the start of the war, more than half a million African Americans were living in the 13 colonies, all but 4% enslaved. They represented approximately 20% of the country's residents, and as enslaved people, they had little to no control over their lives. They were subject to being sold or separated from their families at their master's whim. They were often beaten for minor offenses, and they were expected to do the most arduous labor, often under the worst of conditions. African Americans served both the Americans and the British during the war, joining whichever side they believed offered the greater chance of freedom. This speaks to the really appalling conditions of slavery at that time. What roles did enslaved Americans play during the American Revolution? Uh, Sure. Uh, From 5,000 to 9,000 African Americans, mostly enslaved, served the American cause during the war. They filled a lot of roles, many noncombatant. For example, they were cooks, carpenters, waiters, and here that meant that they waited on white officers. They built bridges, they mended wagons, shoot horses, cleared encampment sites. Some, like Billy Lee, Washington's enslaved valet and huntsman, rode into battle. Washington initially banned blacks from serving, but when he was faced with severe shortages of able-bodied men, and after Lord Dunmore's proclamation promised freedom to blacks who served the British, he relented, and he allowed free blacks to serve. Rhode Island even formed an all-black and Native American regiment headed by white officers. African Americans served for many reasons, but all of them were secondary to the promise of freedom at the end of the war. Relying on the British promises of freedom for service, more than 20,000 black men joined the enemy, believing that England offered a greater hope of liberation from slavery than the nation that produced the Declaration of Independence, which was pretty interesting. How does art unwittingly, to quote you from your article, tell their story? Okay, to to understand what I mean by this, I should talk a little about what I saw in the paintings of Trumbull, Peel, Copley, and several of the other artists who produced uh, compelling paintings depicting events of the war. Most of the paintings discussed in my article, Silence of Slavery and Revolutionary War Art, were produced between 1778 and 1786, either during or shortly after the war, when memories were still sharp and images were raw. The purpose of these historical paintings was to honor and commemorate and pass on to future generations images of heroic, selfless men fighting to create a new, virtuous nation. For the most part, this goal was achieved. Men of action are shown in battle, as in Trumbull's death of General Warren at the Battle of Bunkers Hill, or after or at its if aftermath, as in Washington at Princeton by Peel, or pre-battle, as in Lutz's Washington crossing the Delaware. What stands out in these paintings, in addition to the heroic events they portray, is that all of the men of action depicted are white. But look closely, and you'll see that they all contain an unidentified black figure. In the case of death of General Warren at Bunkers Hill, too, For the most part, these figures are passive, and they recede into the background. In the case of Bunker Hill, you can barely see the second African-American. 
in those cases where the black image is somewhat clear, he looks adoringly at his white master. He's usually in dark clothes, further concealing the image, whereas the white men in the painting are identified by name, the African Americans are not. Probably most befuddling to me is the fact that art historians have guessed at or misidentified the black figures in many of these paintings. For example, very dissimilar images of the black figure in Peel's Washington at Princeton and Trumbull's George Washington have been said to be Billy Lee. It's hard to imagine how that could be, but Farrah Peterson, a legal historian at the University of Chicago, explains this anomaly, saying, quote, unlike Washington's, Lee's actual features were not important to the portraitists. He is present in these images not as a person, but as one of the tools of Washington's greatness and as a symbol of the essential fidelity of the black American. So blacks in these paintings occupy subordinate positions. They're rarely named by, identified by name. And are most often, they're just used as props or background accessories or foils. <clears throat> Erica Dunbar wrote a fascinating book titled Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of the Runaway Slave Ona Judge, in which she said of enslaved people, they were always present, but they were never seen. Slaves were expected to be present, efficient, and ready to answer their master's commands, but also to be docile, obedient, and unobtrusive. Just as they were marginalized in life, so they were in these paintings. I don't think these artists consciously decided to portray blacks in this way. I think they just automatically, i.e. unwittingly, did because this was the culture they lived in. Art mirrored the culture of the time. Tell us about the artist John Trumbull. Well, Trumbull has an interesting background. He was born in Lebanon, Connecticut in 1756, and the youngest of three sons. His two older brothers distinguished themselves as well, Joseph as the first commissary general of the Continental Army, and Jonathan Jr. as the second speaker of the House. John graduated from Harvard College in 1773 at the age of 17, and as I mentioned earlier, became an aide-de-camp to George Washington shortly thereafter. In 1776, he served under Horatio Gates, but resigned in 1777 after a dispute over the dating of his officer commission. In 1780, he went to London, where he studied under Benjamin West, an expatriate American who revolutionized history paintings, being the first to focus on contemporary events and to clothe his figures in contemporary dress. At West's suggestion, Trumbull painted small pictures of the American Revolution and miniature portraits, more than 250 of them in his lifetime. Trumbull painted his first great historical painting of the American Revolution, the death of General Warren at the Battle of Bunker's Hill in 1786 in London, under the tutelage of Benjamin West. West's influence is apparent in this painting, which closely modeled West's The Death of General Wolfe, Wolf being an English general. West at the time served as the royal court painter for King George III, so he he was understandably reticent to paint events that glorified the American side. 
Like West, Trumbull put his figures in contemporary dress and adhered to West's directive not to sacrifice the dramatic impact of his painting for complete historical accuracy. So what you see in the painting is a composite of people, some of whom were not actually at Warren's death, engaged in ghastly combat to illustrate the battle's horrors. Abigail Adams, in a letter to her sister, said her blood shivered when she viewed the sketch for the painting that uh, Trumbull's depiction was so vivid. Apropos to the theme of my article is the fact that Trumbull identified all the white figures in the painting. Warren, Israel Putnam, the Karens, Henry Clinton, and so on, but neither of the two black figures. Controversy still surrounds their identity. The black figure in the right-hand corner crouching behind Lieutenant Thomas Grosvenor has most often been identified as either Peter Salem or Salem Poor. George Quintal and his well-researched Patriots of Color found undeniable evidence that both men were at Bunker Hill. However, Trumbull himself, in his autobiography, simply referred to the black man as Grover's faithful Negro. And Quintal also documented that Grover's servant, Asaba, was at Bunker Hill, uh, making it likely that the person depicted in the painting is Asaba. Nevertheless, Trumbull was silent on the identity of this figure, again underscoring how blacks were taken for granted at that time. And the identity of the second African-American, seen just above the heads of Colonel Knowlton and Putnam, also remains unknown. Could you talk about the importance of Charles Wilson Peale? Tell us about his background. Sure. Peale was born in 1741 in Maryland. He became an apprentice to a saddle maker and opened his own saddle shop at the young age of 14. Proving unsuccessful in saddle making, he tried fixing clocks and working with metals. When both of these enterprises failed, he turned to painting. It should be said that Peale was something of a Renaissance man who not only became a highly successful painter, but also tried his hand in taxidermy, shoemaking, carpentry, and optometry. Um, his enthusiasm for the nascent national government brought him to Philadelphia in 1776, and he became a captain in the Continental Army that same year. Even while he participated in several battles, he continued to paint, doing miniatures of various officers. He is best known for his portraits of Washington and was privileged to paint Washington from life more than any other artist. His most enduring image is Washington at Princeton, which he painted in 1779. Peel fought at Princeton and could have chosen the moment when Washington charged into his Continental soldiers to reverse their retreat from that battle, but instead he chose the aftermath of victory with a confident Washington looking directly at his audience. Trumbull did a similar, similar painting of George Washington in 1780. In both paintings, a black groom and his horse reside into the background. In both, mystery surrounds the groom. Farrah Peterson in The Patriot Slave asserts that the groom in both paintings is Billy Lee, even though the images differ dramatically. As I mentioned earlier, she explained the discrepancy in the groom's features as not being important because he was not there as a person, but as a symbol of Washington's greatness and the fidelity of the black servant. Author James Thompson, in Who Was Billy Lee, 
George Washington's mulatto man disagrees, claiming that Lee is the groom only in the Peel portrait, as evidenced by the lighter skin of a mixed-race person in Peel's image. Not only was Peel at Princeton with Washington, um, he also spent time with him at Valley Forge, and he had more exposure to Billy Lee than any other artist of the period. Nevertheless, neither he nor Trumbull identified the groom, despite there being only two humans in each painting. Interestingly, a domestic portrait by American painter Edward Savage in 1796 includes a black servant in the shadows behind Martha Washington. The servant looks more similar to the one in Peel's portrait than in Trumbull's and has sometimes been identified as Billy Lee, although others say the model for Savage's generic servant was John Riley. He was a free man employed by the American ambassador to London at that time. That John Riley has also been said to be the model for the servant in Peel's Washington at Princeton lends some credence to this claim. Savage named all the individuals in the painting, George Washington, his lady, and her two grandchildren by the name of Custis, except the black servant, whose presence isn't even acknowledged. His identity remains unknown, another indication of how his marginalized position in this portrait mirrored the marginalization of African-Americans in society at that time. You write in your article about John Singleton Copley. Tell us about him. Um, born in Boston in 1738, Copley was trained in the visual arts under his stepfather, Peter Pelham, an English engraver. His earliest paintings from the mid-1750s reveal the influence of English mesotent portraits, and by the end of the decade, he was established as a portrait painter. But his ambition was to paint large historical paintings of contemporary events like those of Benjamin West. When his presence in pre-revolutionary America became precarious because of his marriage to Susanna Clark, the daughter of a prominent Loyalist family, he emigrated to England in 1774. Encouraged by West, the second phase of his career began at that time. Although not a war scene, his first and most famous historical painting, Watson and the Shark, finished in 1778, depicts a traumatic event that took place almost 30 years earlier when a shark severed the leg of 14-year-old Brooke Watson as he swam in Havana Bay. Commissioned by Watson, an English merchant and later the Lord Mayor of London, the composition depicts nine men tightly packed into a small boat, two of them trying desperately to grasp the nude Watson as a harpooner attempts to spear the shark. One of the two standing figures is a black man, who holds the end of a rope that lies limply across Watson's arm close to the shark's open mouth. Now, multiple interpretation of the black man's role in the painting persists today, most of which center around its triangular composition, with the black figure at the peak, the peak usually being reserved for the most important figure. The rope has often been seen as an umbilical cord, giving the black man the power to save Watson. Bucknell University professor Michael Drexler, however, saw the rope as a hangman's loose, which would offer an alternative end to Watson should the harpooner strike true and kill the shark. Despite what has often been said about the black figure's dominant position, an underlying bias toward his inferior status is apparent 
Uh, Albert Bohem, in The Art of Exclusion, for example, focuses on his ambiguous passivity, saying, quote, apparently the majestic black man functions as a servant, waiting to hand the rope to others when called upon to do so, unquote. While Elizabeth Martichu, in pictorial representations of blacks in England in the middle of the 18th century, points to the black man's apparent helplessness in sharp contrast to the harpooner and the two white men trying to rescue Watson, she attributes this aesthetic interpretation as a way to subtly introduce the stereotype of the passive African as opposed to the active nature of whites. Uh, proponents of the grand genre of historical paintings criticize Copley for portraying Watson as a heroic figure when the event really was nothing more than one of personal misfortune. Uh, but Copley, intent on furthering his lucrative career, gave English Tories the flattering images they wanted. And in so doing, the unnamed black man, while at the apex of this painting, is nevertheless portrayed as quietly ineffectual. Who was Gilbert Stuart? Okay. Well, this will be briefer. Born in North Kingston, Rhode Island in 1755, Stuart is often regarded as the greatest artist of the founding period. He studied in London, and he worked in Philadelphia, New York, Washington, and Boston. He painted only two life portraits of George Washington, the second of which he left unfinished in 1796, and he used this as a model for numerous replicas over the years. He reportedly irreverently referred to the original as his 100-bill portrait, $100 bill portrait, the price he charged for each copy he made. Today, over 60 copies survive. Known as the Athenian portrait, this painting, which depicts Washington at 65, is probably his best-known work. We're all familiar with it since its iconic image graces the $1 bill. Now, the story of the revolution and African-Americans who participated in it, however, is told in the historical paintings of Trumbull, Peel, and others. And since Stewart's emphasis was portraiture, his work is only briefly addressed in this article. Edna, we always end with this question. I think it gets to the heart of what we do as historians. Uh, how does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Well, whereas the article briefly describes the participation of up to 9,000 African Americans on the American side and up to 20,000 on the British in the Revolutionary War, the main thing that I think can be gleaned from it is just how deep-seated and entrenched slavery and all it embodied was in the economy and the culture of the time. So much so that the art of the period, unknowingly, unthinkingly, yes, unwittingly, mirrored this attitude. As Erica Dunbar said of blacks at this period, they were always present but never seen. So it was with the art of this period. Although Washington witnessed firsthand the bravery of black soldiers, he remained silent on the issue of slavery. And Revolutionary War art is rife with this same silence. Edna Gabler, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying, 
so long. <laughs>